I don't know if you can hear that, but that's the sound of a jackhammer outside. So, if you're wondering why the recording was a little late, uh, there you go. <laughs> Alright, I am good to go. Time for another podcast episode. This one we're going to be going through straight ahead. No special message for today. Again, I'm going to remind that I do have a Patreon set up, but you don't have to donate. I will be releasing these for free. But if you want me to continue these and churn them out faster, then please do so. All right, here we go. So last time we went up to item number 37 on the list. We're going to be starting with item number 38. Item number 38 is to ask anonymous people the most criminal thing they have done in some countries. And admittance to anonymous forums of this information still counts as legally admissible public confession. Can land your opponents in hot water and possibly maybe their cases aren't published to the media press. Maybe their cases aren't made example of to the rest of the world, but still they get put into charges and then put into a conundrum where further people from their territory, their country, wherever they are from, get stumped there from the community. They get uh, scared that this is going to happen to them again. So all the people that are part of this group, whatever they believe and whatever they do, will then follow this ripple effect of fear because having to deal with the courts and the judges and even though they may not be your friends, it still gets them away from being active and it serves as an example. Even if it's not published in the papers, people will see that this happened and they will start going a bit quieter and they'll be forced into other methods by which they will communicate. Forced into other methods by which they will be able to interact with each other. It's a scary thought, but they have a criminal record, right? So that means that they can be handled justly. Well, criminal records don't necessarily have to reflect a crime that you could consider to be something worthy of being considered a crime. It's just what the legal system at the time considers a crime. When you ask them the most criminal thing they have done, they may reveal those sorts of things. Minor crimes that are very major in some legal systems. But then the problem becomes that not many people will really be admitting to that except in a joke. What you're going to more or less find is that people who are more gullible might talk in vague nature about what they have done. Maybe they've shot someone in the woods and they've buried their body. They'll say they took care of things or something like that. That is still technically an admission that they have done something suspicious. And this can also lead whoever is monitoring the conversation into looking into these people. Number 39 is to goad people into making statements that support violence. This one is very easily able to decapitate a movement. This one is easily able to incapacitate a movement, a grassroots movement. Why? Because the moment that you start going to violence straight ahead is the moment that you look like an extremist. We've been through this before. All of us know how this works. If you look like you're straight up violent and not willing to converse, then the forum, the conversation, will probably not accept you and instead will just see you as a mortal threat of a kind. If you goad them into making statements that support violence, then you goad them into discrediting themselves, into ruining their reputation, and their ability to rationally discuss with you is probably impaired because you've goaded them into making statements of violence in the first place. Maybe they're originally hell-bent on making violence anyway, but in that case, why are you even doing this? Oh right, because you want to get the truth out of them, and the truth is that they're just a bunch of violent people, and they wouldn't want anything else, right? They wouldn't have any other goals or any other beliefs than just being violent, right? See, that's another angle you can approach this from too. Number 40, ask questions with very subjective or impossible right quote-unquote, answers. This sort of thing works well with touchy issues because touchy issues involve emotion and emotional elements of an argument make it more complex. And the higher the complexity inside arguments, the more prone it is towards failure. Now, you need to start injecting a lot of conditions which align with the idea of emotion. You want to align the argument to create a level of how could you do this to people? What do you think like that for? Do you realize how they feel? 
this sort of thing. You come up with impossible right answers from this. You come up with, I could never know how they feel. I could never understand the repercussions of what I've done to this person. So then you look, well, incompetent. You look like you're imperceptive. You look like you don't know what you're doing and the sort of harm that you bring. It's a very subjective take on it too. So you need to create touchy issues and you need to create opinions from that too. You need to make sure that the opinion is the only valid thing because it's touchy, it's very controversial, and then we couldn't say left or right that there is a fact or some truth to base it on. So it all comes down to a person's personal opinion on things, right? And then you need to guise your opinion as being the correct opinion, even though there's no technical correct opinions, there's just opinions. You also need to do this in a way that makes it so that the audience will come along with you because you have the audience along with you they won't at some point stop and question you they won't put the hand up and go stop that's enough we were talking officially about this a moment ago we were talking about something that mattered you need to draw them in to this and create a level of impossibility about having a right answer with a touchy issue such as something to be moral or ethical or possibly to do with standards of performance and the ethics therein or possibly to do with the standards of how things can be done perfectly or imperfectly or which one is supposed to be done and which thing is supposed to be included. You, you get the point. The preclusion, the exclusion, the tossing away of right answers, and then you frame the argument in a way that suits you best and comforts the picture that you've conjured up for other people. Number 41. Claim your opponent's argument opens up a hazardous gateway. We can't start thinking like that, otherwise we're going to go down a terrible path. If we start thinking like that, if we start advocating, if we start letting these people bring this sort of thought into the limelight, then things are going to get a lot harder from now on and they're going to get a lot more difficult for everybody involved, including you, fellow human. You're a fellow human, right? They're opening up a hazardous gateway that is so hazardous towards humans. This can be done in the sense that their argument will open up some sort of risk. And risk is almost ever present when it comes to the ideas of what we should introduce politically, what we should introduce for people to be able to have and what be able to do, politically speaking. You need to claim that the argument they're making will introduce something that is uh, beyond the sphere of acceptability, not necessarily just hazardous to. You need to make an argument such that the opponent is making hazards. You only need to claim your opponent's argument leads to a hazardous gateway. You don't necessarily have to prove all of it. You can be uh, somewhat skeptical and you can list them with an endless list of questions to do with the abs most absurd cases of what their argument will propose and then manifest as. But this all originally comes down to the conversation and it comes down to the idea of censorship. It doesn't actually fold over into the real actions taken until they have a basis in what was proposed initially through words. This all happens during the conversation and it's all about the argument itself, not necessarily what comes of the argument. So in that regard, you need to pressure it as if it is wrong think. Yes, wrong think. I know that word is thrown around a lot, but that is what is being pressured as. You can't start talking like that. You're not allowed to start talking like that. That's dissent. That's the arguments of a traitor. That is propaganda. That is spreading these unpatriotic things, spreading these terrible, dissolving, acidic things that will ruin all the structure that we have currently that keeps us safe and warm and keeps us comforted and keeps us happy. Number 42, drip feeding. You need to make constant disparaging comments and therefore you don't actually get into an argument. This effect accumulates and eventually you have something like, for example, a description of cuckservative, burger education, white male, 56% shills as sort of an everyday target of speakers in the crowd. So a little bit more elaboration on how this works 
because it might seem confusing. Say that you start calling somebody a cuckservative, and then that somebody has a trait that belongs to the greater group of what would be burgers, or, you know, the United States of America, people inside that education system. Burgers. Burger education. So now they're a cuckservative, burger-educated, white male, all right? This is a white male too. So all, all these sort of ideas come from different individual conversations that have been had to where these sort of monikers have been described per their negatives, attributes which have been highlighted from the worst of them, from the worst of their kind, from the most absurd. Comedic, comical examples really create intensity to the argument here because these are things that people remember. This is all to do with memes for the most part. So the effect accumulates. And then when you just turn this all into a big mosh pit, a big melting pot of a meme, suddenly you have these applicable little parts that can be used individually, but you have this great big description that can be used to create abominable images of the opponent. The more and more you discredit them with these images, with this combination of these things that have been taken from absurdities and cartoonish representations, the more and more it is so that you can conjure up an image, a complete image, so to speak, that therefore discredits greater and greater aspects of your opponent. And then eventually this drip feeding, this disparaging comment chain, means that you don't have to argue with them. You just say it to them. And then the idiots who are pretty much your supporters at this point, who is probably the majority, will fall into this idiotic mode of repetition where they just start calling them these names that you've conjured up for them, these concepts without having a fair conversation to be had about it. They dismiss them and they throw them aside. It's like if I started calling people a midwit. I can just dismiss the majority of the population because they lie within the middle part of the IQ scale. You disagree with me? Midwit. And then where this leads to is that because I've started calling them these names, the further and further I go, the more ridiculous it seems. The more room there is to offend them, the more room there is to make them seem irrational because they get emotional and they get aggressive and confrontational and then there is no argument to be had. There is no debate. To me, they're just a cuckservative, burger-educated, white male, 56% shill. Number 43. Jump on a bandwagon. This should be pretty self-explanatory. Bandwagons, they're very alluring when things go awry. You jump in with the crowd, you jump in with the trend, you don't have to think for yourself even. You don't have to pioneer yourself, you don't have to make a dig yourself or stand up for yourself. You just have to keep in with the bandwagon and keep that thing rolling. Keep that wagon rolling on down to safety. Number 44. Plead special rights. Most times interacting with the majority of people in these sort of discussions, you will have to go down to their level. You start to act like you're above people or that you have some sort of special exemption. You are seen as discredited and you are seen as incapable of of having to stand up to the forces that are and will be. But you have the ability to plead special rights. You have the ability to say that you're oppressed. You have the ability to say that you're unaccounted for. You have the ability to say that you're forgotten. You have the ability to say you're being replaced. You have the ability to say all these things, even down to the point of saying something on your individual basis. Say that you're a expert on something. Then you have the special right of having the authority to speak on it, don't you? You have the word, you have the loudest voice in the room. Why should anybody else be listening to anybody else but you? Yes, I'm going to make the snowflake argument. You are a special snowflake. That is the idea here. So if you are a special snowflake in this regard, and you're so individual and special, uh, you would never do that things so you don't have to care about the comparisons you can make between your nature and the nature of another, how you were affected or another was affected. And so there is no argument to be had. Isn't that easy? Number 45. Try to insert emotion into every issue or argument. How does this change from number 
40. I'll read out number 40 again. Ask questions with very subjective or impossible right answers. This works well with touchy issues. And now 45 is try to insert emotion into every issue or argument. Inserting emotion into an argument or every issue is alluring towards the fan base that you have. Ideas, your proposals. Really, you want to use language and ideas that excite the feeling, the soul, or rather the lack thereof, the pure environmental reactivity, illicit brain that people have, a reflex kick to their fear senses. You need to insert emotion. If you don't insert emotion into things, it seems soulless. People won't catch on. There won't be a consideration, a dieness to things. But you need to do it for every issue or argument, even if it is so blatantly not an emotional matter. You need to make everything into an emotional matter. If you start inserting emotion into everything, then you create these airy-fairy, undiagnosable problems. You create these problems that lord over on high and will never be taken down until you are through and stop talking about it until it's free of people's hearts, minds, and souls until their burden is no longer felt. Inserting emotion into everything creates this uncombatible spirit. Emotion will create this level of lack of logic and reason, rationality. It will create this environment that can easily see the destruction of their argument and your own if you wish to cleanse it from you. If it was corrupted, if it didn't work out, you insert emotion because there is no question to be had per what the emotions tell the people observing. All of that sounds rather theatrical, but it is surprising how many people truly think that they're in control or they can manage their own emotional response to things, but they're actually just a reactive ticker and that they get thrown one way and they clock back the other way. This all sounds rather long-winded. It sounds complicated the way that I'm saying it. It's very simple, but for how simple it is, it is more often than not overlooked. People trust themselves too much. They trust that they can see beyond this emotive manipulation that may have been done for them. They may trust that they can see beyond the emotive conduct that has been used to phrase itself, the enemy, into each and every issue that may arise. This sort of thing applies to even the most reactive lizard brain of people, because you can play off fear or some semblance of feeling warmth. You may have very well been tricked in your time, because you feel good about being rational. Think for a moment. Wouldn't that be the easiest way to get around the ideas of keeping enlightenment relevant? Is to start making people feel good and fulfilled that things have become rational. It sounds like a good way to change things to me. The previous episode, I was construed as being unfair in my views of libertarians and the arguments by which they proliferate their own kind. I'm going to apologize, in turn, by doing the feature content that I wanted to do for this podcast anyway. I wanted to talk about a few things that I learned from the libertarian side of things, about how the government changes things to suit you because it suits the government to do so, about how the government reframes you, cuts you into a new blade of grass on a mowed lawn. All the same. Let's talk about government programs. So government programs mean that people don't have to rely on each other or themselves. They give people welfare. It means that families don't need to provide for them or even care for them. The more welfare you give them, the more they can become isolated. The government can educate the kids. The parents don't have to. There doesn't have to be private tutors. And then, therefore, whatever the curriculum is, whatever the indoctrination may be, the government wants to instill at any point can be reasonably put in so. Because the government is educating the kids, right? And kids need education, don't they? Full stop. Education. We don't want to have any conspiracy theorists here. And God knows that mummy and daddy need to work, pay off those bills, that debt. We start to force kids to sleep alone in our cultures. Psychologists will support this fact. We wean our kids off earlier and earlier. 
We need them to toughen up. The same way we throw them and we lob them into government schools, knowing full well the quality is dampened by being a state curriculum, state-funded, state-run. The reality of schools is that they don't necessarily get better because they have a private funding. What gets better about them is a facilitation, the facilities, teachers. In this regard, having a homeschool is the best option available. Not only do they have the teachers being the parents or a private tutor put in inside a secluded classroom, they have the ability to engage in the most optimal routine because all things in a homeschool are done around trying to cater towards the same curriculum but improvised where there are no facilities to do so. In a private school, they have the affordable facilities and jack them up a notch. They have the extra resources. They have the teachers who have to give a shit or they get fired, get thrown out the door. They have the teachers who have to care because they get fired, slapped out the door. They don't have a cushy job in what they're doing. Of course, there is the problem with government funding going towards private schools, and that is to be considered. But a ravenously singular goal of private schooling is profit, and they would not be able to generate profit if they didn't have some means of churning out better students. Wives divorce knowing governments will provide for them. Families will be broken because they know that there is a no-fault divorce, and the woman can just walk out with the government protection. And as we all know, uh, much more than that, we're looking at the chance of a man to lose not only his wife, but his kids and his dignity, and maybe his job or house, car, any possession that is taken for the advantage that women tend to have in the law. And this doesn't just happen in Western countries. This happens in Islamic countries. The law there can make it so that a man can go absolutely 50-50 with his wife and she can just leave him like in a snap. As much as we try to paint them as a bunch of rock-throwing, goat-screwing sand people, they have their own laws and government. And the laws and government in some Islamic places make it so that women are basically pampered dolls, that when they leave, they get a good penny. And they have to actually pony up a fair bit of money initially before they actually get the woman to the family. Sort of a down payment, you could call it. Parents fail to raise their kids because they know the government will be there to help. The government will be there to fill in all the requirements that the parents cannot do. And then we look for grants, and we look for scholarships, and we look for ways to take out massive loans backed on the government pay, especially things like Hex Help over here, and the welfare and affordability that comes with people who will be able to be kicked out of home and then go on some sort of rental assistance, go on some youth student allowance, all forms of welfare. So the parents can start to more and more just kind of forget about their children and raising them because the more and more welfare is available to them going into that world that is further and further replacing the roles of the parent and where the parent should be. If people actually needed each other more so, the relationships would be stronger and we could not be exploited as easily. There wouldn't be as much struggling to be had. The whole setup of society is designed to divide people in this way. People have these massive conflicting beliefs with the government that they have never once discussed with their neighbours or family, which is interesting because they don't really have the power to change much of it because the government already has the presiding power to do all that it wants. And further and further, it enamours itself with this. Welfare is to divide people, not necessarily to help them. They don't want you to be strong and support yourselves. They want you to be further and further caving in to further and further thresholds of weakness. Welfare sounds amazing initially because the most attracting propositions are the most dire circumstances. But that's with any proposal. The most absurd circumstances circumstances of what are used in order to make it so that you will cave. I'm not going to say that I haven't been on welfare in my life. That would be hypocritical of me. I am going to say that I don't enjoy it, and nobody should enjoy being on welfare. Having a job and having a paid position is much more fruitful. But further and further, the government can invite conditions whereby the people or the higher rung on the ladder, the big corporations and people who belong to investment banks and all the big higher-ups who get enough money to stave this off, and their families. It becomes a frightening scenario where more and more people are paid to 
do the bare bottom, but they can't escape it. A frightening scenario where there is less and less drive to reach upwards because there are more and more limitations. We are weaker divided and we become more reliant on government, which is what they want. The great government keeps providing more and more places where we should have had something to resolve it of our own. And people more and more use the government as a safety net. And then we end up in conditions whereby we start saying that the government has an endless supply of money and it's all just figures on a data sheet. And that's the real trouble, isn't it? Because as much as that is said, we still pay taxes. We still pay costs and affordability. And this money still comes out of plans that we have to account for. So when's the end line? When do we take it back? We can't. We've been sown a position whereby all the welfare and all the considerations and all the provisions that have been given to us by these so gracious governments have replaced our ability to do that. And then we get into conditions like by their introduction of licensing to keep big businesses on top and other businesses out. And payments for cars, payments for TVs, and payments for all these things and licenses and registrations you have to have with the government. Licenses are just a registration system in the same way that you can register data on a data sheet. Licenses are just a means by which you can declare that, yes, I have this that you are speaking about. I have an ID to go with it. And this ID proves to the government or the legal body that I do, in fact, have it. Licensing doesn't mean that you have the qualification behind it. Licensing just means that you've passed the requirements to get the license. Often they have qualifications behind them, but you could go get a license for doing something of a trade and you could have the same qualifications required to do that trade, but you wouldn't be accepted into employment if you didn't have the license. You could get a license for a firearm and we all are very comfortable when people have licenses for firearms because if you have a licensed firearm, that means the government can keep track of your firearm and you. All it is is just serving as a data bank item. Any item that has any registration number license can be at any point included in tracking you, can be at any point included in doing audit logs on what you do and when you've done it. At any point, they so choose to get a bit more overbearing used against you, first and foremost, you. You will be fascinated at the amount of people who have been born and raised, especially in Australia, to believe that the government is some infallible entity, some infallible force that is able to conduct its own will and be the righteous rightness. Because the law is the law, and the law is what's right and wrong. Not any philosophical sense, not any abstraction, not any religious, ethical, or moral standing. The law is what's right and wrong to these people, and the government is the big official body, the, the parent. It's the parent that could never do wrong to a lot of these people. These are some of the reasons why people don't trust the government. This comes from a meme image, and the sheer volume is enough to incite your investigation, I would say. MK Ultra, Operation Northwoods, Operation Paperclip, Operation Fast and Furious, Operation Mockingbird, Tuskegee Experiments, Waco and Ruby Ridge, JFK, the NSA spying, Building 7, Gulf of Tonkin, Chicago Black Sites, Flint Water Crisis, Iran Contra, Gary Webb, NDAA, Patriot Act, Bilderberg Group, Bohemian Grove, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay. There. These are all just names of things, events, details as to why you shouldn't just immediately trust governments. This whole podcast was started around the idea that greater, big, powerful things will be fooling around with you. But the thing is that I can't so easily convince people of that because they're blinded and persuaded by the idea of a democracy. They're blinded and persuaded by the idea of these governments being for the people and run by the people. One, I should note that the American people are technically not in a democracy. They're in a republic. It's different. The Australian people are technically in a constitutional monarchy, although our constitution is overlooked as of late, and what rights we have are also just seemingly words on paper. 
but I won't go into that. Something to remember is that if you give the government an inch, it will take a mile. That is the nature of power. If you give someone the ability to open a gate, they will want to go in and they will want to walk about the whole complex. You didn't let them do that, but hey, you opened the gate for them, didn't you? You have to think of government's allowance to get power as opening the floodgates, and you need to have a barrier to stop them from where they want to go. And disguising everything as a democracy makes things a lot easier to do that. If you want to go read a work on this, then I highly suggest going to read Democracy, the God that Fail. They will plead to democracy to get you to do what they want. They will say that the enemy is stripping away your democracy. They will frame democracy as something that you have and something that you use to control what's currently going on. And they will frame the discussion as being almost like a wrestling match in entertainment in the democratic chambers, the chambers of parliament, the chambers of... The Senate, the chambers of where the representatives talk and speak. But the reality is, it's a lot less control that people have than they think. I'm just going to go over a simple list of reasons why democratic rule isn't that ideal. So first one is mob rule. The tyranny of the majority. It doesn't matter that you're right or that everyone votes something. It's just that the majority of the population given to voting gives the answer and gives the conclusion. And the majority of the population can be quite easily swayed by bullshit, by nonsense, by emotive crap, by changing things behind the scenes, by cutting information here and there by limiting what people are exposed to, by changing what people will think day in, day out, because you've fostered a group of people who just think of you as some all-powerful, all-knowing entity who couldn't do any wrong or could never invade their privacy or could never hurt them by doing that in the first place, who could never step on their toes. Democracy and democratic rule appeals to the lowest common denominator in every equation of people. So it's why your average Joe doesn't know shit and should not be in control of your rights and rules. I'm sorry, but that's that's the truth. The average Joe really doesn't know the high extent of how power and laws are integrated and how power executes what laws are made. Laws are sacred. They are sacred things and they have been sacred since their formation and creation. They can very easily be manipulated and you can put in laws that seem great at the time, but further on in the future, the regime that you hate, that comes in in short terms because it's democracy, by the way, will use those laws against you. The average Joe doesn't know almost anything of what's going on besides the current facts and figures of what problems are presented in the issues they're going to vote on. The average Joe is more concerned about their livelihood and if it's going to be impacted or not. They don't know the machinations at work, the analysis to be made of all the different ways which they are subverted, all the different ways in which power compensates for what it has lost, collaborates with other powerful figures of how it is able to change the way in which politics is even executed, in the way that war and peace is separated or is the same. The average Joe just doesn't know because they shouldn't concern themselves with it because their concern is whether or not they get the benefits that are stated on the ballot box. There's no real guarantee they'll be delivered. The Democratic Party that gets in just has to be in. They can give an endless date on when those are going to be delivered so long as the average Joe supports them because they've given them the thing that they said was the good thing because the average Joe doesn't look too far into it. It's sad but it's true. Democracy involves the liberalization of the polity and the politicians. For some reason, politicians are totally untrustworthy, especially in Australian culture. Politicians are seen as totally untrustworthy up until you think of having a vote. And then what are you voting on exactly? As I prior mentioned, there'll be some ballot boxes, and there'll be some proposals from the party, but how many of these parties can you really trust? So average Joe desires the means of production, right? They can't actually think about the consequences of demanding to own them, the consequences of growing unions to mass 
massive influential sizes, the consequences of governments having a hand in every other pie, the consequences of the involvement of government and corporations and how that actually works. It's not like the government is a big hammer that blows down on the corporation's fingers when they do something wrong. When the government and the corporations get into regulationism, it gets into the point where the corporations, the big ones, will start cooperating with the government and they control and they own a lot of what you interact with. So then there becomes a privacy concern and a concern of what's being pushed in your government area. Have you seen China? China is involved with pretty much all the big organizations that have presence over there. Do you think that merely China being involved makes things better? No. They have massive regulation. Do you think it makes things better for the worker? No. That's how they trick you. They make corporations look much worse than they actually are. And then they take a hold inside those corporations and the corporations and the governments work in tandem to put in conditions such as privacy invasion, political rallying, such as advertising of acceptable political content, changing the way in which people can post content or make money from these platforms, from these media, from anything that is done with the company the government is involved with, the organization they're involved with. They have the manufacturing of consent. Early 20th century democratic thought was changed by insights by manipulative psychologists and their theories on how to manufacture your consent. It's an organizational mechanism for society to stabilize this consumerism inspiration. This is especially in regards to materialism. I bet you a good portion of the people who say that they're all for the workers' parties are people who are very materialistic and are doing this because they know how profitable it is to actually be in that position. The welfare state. You love paying them to sit around. The welfare state. As I discussed, people sit around or they live a life that gets further and further in funding and care from the government. Well, how about those criminals? How about those criminals who also carry a vote, right? They're going to fuck over your society, aren't they? Sorry for the crude language, but it's true. They're going to take your hard-earned cash and they're going to run it into the ground, aren't they? And they have the vote. Gridlocked politics. Yeah, it took that long to get a bill through and it will take that long again. It takes forever to get a bill through. Politics gets so gridlocked. There's so many different voices trying to block something from going forward. Bribery and fraud. I think if we look into the case of some rather potent political figures and democratic parties of late, bribery and fraud is a big consideration. With a more democratic structure, businesses have a lot more openness with contact with the government. It's much easier for them to get along and much easier for bribery and fraud to work its way in from private interests. With a large democracy comes a large union standing from further and further shifting left, the liberalism of democracy to further and further influence itself. And therefore comes union bullies. The socialists, communists, the mobsters, they're all in tandem. They're all together. The unions of the old day were criminals, to say the least. There can still be unions in a small scale, and they're the ideal ones to have. But the unions, the big ones that I'm talking about, were criminals in disguise. And some of them not even in disguise, just blatantly out there, criminals. How many people have offered to be part of the Labour Party? How many people have been for the worker? And they've been using democracy and how manipulable that is for liberal ideas to get through these emotional appeals in order to get themselves into the power position of a union leader, probably many. There is legislature unto oblivion. Democratizing the legal process benefits a system of erratic, unstable, and dysfunctional decisions. There's so much legislature being put into because we have to protect the interests of the incessant, constant, and highly abundant needs of the people. There is an overextension of government and government services. In recent times, this also extends to malinvestment of these government services. We all asked the government to provide for us, and they did so. Exactly how the government would do it. The bureaucratic bloated structure would do it. It has to attend to everybody that has a vote and has a crying shame to say towards this big powerful entity. Forced voting. God, do I hate forced voting. Why would you get fined for not having an opinion? 
inconveniencing. Sometimes people simply don't care. They don't want to have an issue actually dealt with. They want a very specific interest group to deal with it for them. And they want to be let alone. They don't want to have to campaign. They don't want to have to know in the future they're going to have to go out there with a picket sign, shout and scream to get what they want. That sounds like communist talk, I know. A lot of people don't really want to go out there and protest and sure, you should have to struggle to keep things right if you have the authority, the ability to do so. But some of these things they don't even have an idea of. They're an average Joe. They don't care and they can't care right now. They can't go out there and democratize themselves to do everything. They acquire what they need in their life and they and the political change is accessory. They've got problems with doing that sort of thing. They can't think of it right now and some of them can't even think of it. Some of them truly cannot think of the right decision to make and they just go with the pack and they feel happy that someone's out there representing them. They would rather have someone doing the decisions for them in the first place and they didn't have much to say. Why are we invading this sandy desert all the way on the other side of the earth? Oh, it's for democracy. It's for freedom. Defining freedom as only democracy, excusing the various scams that have been laid upon people to go to random oil field rich countries, to have wars there for reasons that in the beginning were already awry and wrong and obvious to a person who had even an inkling of ability to investigate. Oh, it's for democracy. Yes, we're going to introduce democracy to these people. It's the key buzzword, it's the emotional spin of the idea of everybody having their say and everybody having this perfect world where everyone's say is heeded and therefore everyone's say gets to be considered until it doesn't and they're unhappy and they realize that they never had a say in the first place. It was the people who have been convinced, nay manipulated, nay bought by some greater faction, by some greater trust the government had with some corporation or some secret investigative body or some government subsidiary, something that it truly all goes back to, something experimental maybe. The democratic politicians who are touted as being for the people, by the people, they are the ones who let in floods of foreigners, floods of people from other demographics to change the existing one, the one that may be old-fashioned, the one that may be voting them out, may have different concerns. The new American, the new Australian, the one where they have a poster of a very foreign-looking person on the streets that says the words Aussie or American on it. The replacements. Democracy lets these people have the power that they require. But the reality is that they're very manipulable. They come in and they get possibly benefits from the government, but otherwise the government has assured that they get into this country where they can do a lot better than the one they did at home. And they can take all the positions and the belonging that other people would get who were native to the area. And I'm not just talking about whites, even though I've mentioned America and Australia. I mean anybody, anyone who was originally in the group that is now being employed, that is now existent, will be replaced by this ever-growing foreign intake because it is a foreign demographic that can be forever continued because it is favorable for some reason. It is not as questioning. It is grateful. It is able to be cheaply kept around for businesses and it costs the taxpayer quite a bit, but that makes them happy because that just means more taxes. Democracy meant to encourage you and to be your bedrock for your own life and decisions to matter in politics in the current globalized economic system becomes a matter of inviting in the people who aren't you and aren't your kind to change in a way suited that destroys the native kind in a way where the current consumer becomes the foreign consumer because of the cosmopolitan globalized view on things. Current people who are not performing adequately anymore are replaced in favor of these foreign mush 
the democracy becomes one financially because it all comes down to a level of tax base and how the money can be piled on and spent, how the government can reach out further and further towards these foreign peoples and the same population that it is ruling over now. And how many more times can they take up the tax? How many times can they take up new foreigners and balance that with private and public debt? How interesting is it that there's all this debt and consumerism generated, grow the GDP and help the market economy for jobs? It all becomes an economic solution. This democracy that was supposed to be a political effort to give you your kind of voice becomes a matter of finances, becomes a matter of economics, becomes a matter of inviting in all sorts in order to reach the new quotas of the people at the top. Then there's limitations imposed by foreign powers because they know that the further demographic expands per democracy's rules, the further power they will have inside that democracy because these people more often than not will not just be voting for their own interests, they'll be voting for the interests of where they came from and that very well could be a sort of influence if you will. Okay, Mr. Ping, we're going to make sure that your country has a limit on the immigration that you bring to us, but we're going to accept some of your people in compensation for our new economic agreements. Well then, how many would you like? 10 million? 5 million? 30 million? How many people would you like? 10,000? 20,000 tomorrow? It's a weapon to be used against a democracy because a democracy is extremely open to being manipulated by that. And then they as people get all the same rights as a citizen because it's a democracy. In a republic, you can change that. You can have certain people have more influence because of different mechanisms, but in a democracy, it's the vote and the vote that stands. When these supposed proponents of democracy, these representatives of the people, are speaking about democracy, in the words of Sir Oswald Mosley, when they speak of democracy, they don't mean government by the people, they mean financial democracy, in which money counts and nothing but money. If you want a nation to be democratic, put a bank in it. Put a big bank that's connected to all the other international finance banks. All those people out there who say that they're anti-fascists, who say that they're socialists, communists, integralists, whatever they are, unionists, you know what they want to do? They don't want democracy. No, they want some form of socialism, communism, anarchism, communo-anarchism. They want something that isn't democracy. Do you know Athenian democracy? You want Athenian democracy? Okay, go back to Athens. Go back to the system of people, the type of people that lived in Athens. They are a far cry from the average person nowadays. We have gone quite far from the rules and ethics and standards in those days. And I don't even have to tell people who are fascist or monarchist or national socialist or anything like that. Like that. Why democracy is not truly wanted and why democracy is not the true ideal. Having a republic where there are different ways of doing voting other than just giving people a vote individually, where there are other counts to be considered rather than just the total count received from votes. Other considerations, other substantial contributions towards who gets elected. These things, they're already understood. And I will ask anybody who is to reconsider what I have told them, how many things can be excused under the idea that you can accuse someone of being a threat to our democracy? You're a threat to our democracy. These people are a threat to our democracy. Why do people say that? Have you ever thought of it? Why are they a threat to your democracy? Aren't they allowed to have a say? Are they some sort of massive terror threat that's going to shoot you down and completely corrupt and destroy the democracy? Well, then why aren't we militarily addressing the threat? Oh, they're not. Oh, they're not. They're just a bunch of people who want to say this or that, but get censored for it and then get construed as being extremists that are even worse than the true people who are going out and shooting people in the head for disobeying them. Have you ever considered why it is that politicians keep saying that something is a threat to our democracy and it's the only thing they really want to say that 
get grasp people's attention? Have you considered why it is that the democracy is the bedrock upon which they place all of the reliability of their claims of protecting the people, as protecting democracy, as labeling things a threat to the democracy? And so this infinite loop begins where they just start labeling things a threat to the democracy, they tackle it. People start questioning why they tackled it, and then say that they are protecting democracy. And then they find another threat to democracy, and then there isn't a question to be had, and the people who question it are said to be the threat to democracy. The people who look into the validity of the democracy are said to be a threat to democracy. Democracy can become more powerful, more in the interest of people who are more likely to align with the parties that gain power. If the democracy is to invite a horde of people from foreign lands, then what do we think about the displacement of the local peoples? How easy is it to displace local peoples when you are focused, hyper-focused? Okay, let's just slow down for a bit here. So far, my delivery has been uncompromisingly stream of consciousness about this. Let's narrow this down to the common factor of importance here. The idea of democracy for the individual, the consumer, the voter, the subject of these ideas. But why conflate consumers with a voter base? If you recall, previously on this podcast, I've mentioned Century of the Self, a documentary by Adam Curtis. Braving Ruin, a former political content creator on YouTube, made a compelling video summarizing, quote, how individualism, TM, ate itself. Summary and analysis per Century of the Self's documentary of democracies. Braving Ruin unfortunately ceased releasing content, as a certain German, who won't be named, threatened to dox them. That, and probably other reasons. The wound is unfortunately still fresh for me, so I won't speak anymore. But you can find their video if you just look. For context, Braving Ruin also provided alternative angles to the James Fields case and the Charlottesville incident, from which Heather Hare was left deceased. These alternative angles paint James's actions in a very different light, and Heather as receiving no fatal damage, if damage at all. But the courts said otherwise, the media the same. Who are we to question the courts? Our news sources, right? Back on track, Braving Ruins video encapsulates the important message of Century of the Self, dawn and decay of trademarked, patented, consumerist individuals who are sheep for democracies built upon their obedient wants. How we treat people as individuals and deny the existence of groups. How we believe this is a fair and just way of things. How we construe identity politics and collectivism as innately bad. At the time of release, this was particularly potent, especially amongst the classical liberal crowd. Despite classic individualism, that of uh, Locke, Franklin, Mill, etc. being a modern Bailey sham, where truly corporate worship and fulfilling oneself through material purchases and consumption was paving the way. Here is the general rundown. I warn you that you may feel betrayed or played if you hear this. Sigmund Freud believed that all human beings harbor manipulable dark inner forces. Quote, men cannot be free with society, something man cannot live without, he reckoned. Minds of the time agreed partially or in total. Revolts such as in Russia, the October Revolution, were calamity and chaos that didn't suit governments one bit. The argument proposes that humans demand being controlled and are fated against freedom. Enter Edward Bernays, Freud's nephew, who believed democracy lifted subjective desire above objective public rule. Bernays' solution was to create a society with controls, forms of mental wash, so people could have their democracy and the elites could run it away from the people's interference. Bernays garnered both attention and power for this perspective with American consumerism becoming idealized through events such as the World's Fair and images of tomorrow's metropolis. Produced goods would become more involved in daily people's identities, turning democracy into a matter of customers and products. 
The fashionable and the elite were used to market statements under the guise of liberation and people's power. Plans were made to have elite women in parade and as suffragettes, smoking in public. For, per psychoanalysis logic, the cigarette is a penis, which women did envy to be lacking. Such that smoking helped to become a power of women's equality, a symbol of women's equality. Consumerism could be validated and endorsed through making the product a fulfilling aspect of the consumer's lives. The individual had happiness created for them in a production line. Joy was given to the world. Walking, talking, happiness machines. Enter Anna Freud. Anna Freud believed to approach what Bernays believed, but chose to pursue inner therapy. Applying psychoanalysis to the masses through psychological guidance centers across the US. If people conformed to accepted patterns of family and social life, they would be able to control the dangerous forces within them. Meanwhile, Ernest Dichter, another psychoanalyst, believed the public fundamentally irrational and sought to expose the subconscious desires of consumerism in what we now know as focus groups. When cake mix off the shelf was marketable, it satisfied the focus groups to add an egg so that the woman didn't feel guilty for not participating in making food for their loved ones. Dichter was trying to substantiate that individuals express themselves through consumption of products. At this point, advertising was a psychoanalyst game. After World War II, advertising was practically a psychoanalyst's game. Bernays, hired by the CIA, found by experimenting with the bombings and invasion in Guatemala and the periodic press, the combination of democratic approval and press reinforcement would, later with theatre of Nixon walking amongst an archive of Marxist literature at a location, easily rouse foreign policy support. After an intense failure at psychoanalysis applied to personal lives, including that of the case of Marilyn Monroe, Herbert Marcuse fostered deconstruction of the self in order to exercise what was conceived as implants by society and corporations in people's heads. The new student left to adopt this idea, marched, rioted, and demonstrated with the slogan, there's a policeman inside all our heads, he must be destroyed. This inspired the weathermen, otherwise known today as Weather Underground, to carry out a series of bomb attacks in attempts to cause terror and kill enemies of the new left. Yes, at this point I am talking about the prelude to Antifa, who today hold an intense democratic support for their movement from the current day left, whether or not they realise it or like it. As we're now getting into the territory of individual liberation, movements and psychotherapy frontiers, I'm going to fast forward to how this came full circle. In a nutshell, what was once the theories of Freud and Bernays to control the populace through consumerism had now become in an age of more acutely catered, computerized market world, Maslow, Erhard, and Marcuse influence, the theories of special expressions. The missing piece in life was now found, and each special individual was catered to, because no matter their worries, they had a product, and if the worries were incalculable, perhaps suffering insurmountable, they would be convinced it was an absence of these products. In other words, the individual and their expression was considered priority, not conformity. But the same institutes and think tanks which created this development co-opted what the new left populace desired at the consumer level. In doing so, self-expression prioritization culture had become consumerism. Hippie boomers getting that special product for especially them and them only. Normative behaviors were seen as evil, and this new inner self-actualization was seen as the good. And some may even argue that the open sexuality of the time to sell one's body as such an object is also a symptom of this then we have Reagan-era political marketing. Radical, individualistic, and successful. Margaret Thatcher, same thing. Labour realised they would have to have appeal to the new individualism. Then we get to the crippling debt under Clinton, and how he initially was against government rule growing, 
then for it after reconciling with the debt. Swing voters left the Democrats and went to the Republicans. Democracy had devolved to being about swing voter captivation, so consumers and products. Desires catered to and pandered to. Highly specific issues for general and overwhelming growing power. The more complexities they cover, the more relatable they seem, because it's not just macro scale to the voter, in the voter's eyes, the personal voter perception. And so it is here that we have mob rule. The key and common complaint about democracy. Because the mob's often unrecognized basic, primitive desires can be catered to, even socially engineered into them. Politics was now just a business. A democratic government is a corporation now. The voter base are being sold the next leadership through the product lines they sell. Eat your cake and wave the flag. Rational voters are mythological to the political class. Everyone is a measuring stick. How far must one go to meet your price? What promise makes you feel good that cannot ever actually be fulfilled? A very grateful thank you to Braving Ruin and a suggestion to go watch Century of the Self prior to or after Braving Ruin's video. That's how individualism, TM, ate itself. I could not be making this piece of content without these, and as a former libertarian myself, I concede it is revelation for the false ideas we have regarding individualism now and then. Okay, that'll about do it. I haven't had a very fun time in the past three weeks. Well, I could say the same for anyone in New South Wales or Victoria. Uh, Queensland, I guess. Things aren't looking up. Uh, look into the news for Australia. Things just aren't looking up right now. Uh, things are getting tough. This isn't saying pity on me. This is just saying that things have been a bit uh, more burdensome. It's not necessarily that there's a burdensome nature to the work that I have to do, but it's rather the, the lack of it because it's just not coming in. So uh, I'm going to tell you my job, but I will tell you the work ain't coming in. So given that things are things are getting a bit tight, I hope this is a, in some way useful to you, the information that I relay to you, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to release these on a schedule at all. I'm picking out what little work and things I can do. And because of this, my schedule is being absolutely flooded because I, I need it. Like now I'm saving up in the near future. I've also bought quite a lot of food. There's a wheat shortage going on, apparently, across the world, I've been hearing. Uh, apparently in WA, they had a pretty strong wheat harvest, but I don't trust that to get to shelves very quickly because the truckers, truckies are having a strike, it appears. I'm recording this as of the day that I release it. So yeah, uh, huh. things are going to get a bit hot from now on. Things are going to get a bit dangerous and dire. For me, I'm just happy to be able to complete this and put it out there as content. Heck, I don't even care if I make a lot of money from this. I don't care if I make a dime. I just... A dime? I need to stop using American terms. I don't care if I just don't make a cent from this. As long as I get the information to all of you and it comes in use and handy, if it keeps interesting in some way. Next podcast might come sooner. As you can probably tell, yeah, I didn't keep to my schedule because I can't keep to a schedule. Things have been a bit hectic. So instead, I'm just going to release them at some point during the week. You can expect them at some point during the week until things calm down a bit. And then after that, maybe in the midweek, I might try to do things. Heck, I may even release another one this week just to catch up. That'd be good, won't it? Hopefully so. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be able to get my act together a little bit better soon, when things are a little less stressful. Okay, goodbye. The government made the plague on purpose. The untested truths, spun by different interests, continue to churn. Three. And accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness. Nine. 
and value systems. There are no nations. There are no peoples. Mutant freaks fit only for killing. Three. I have a dream. Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community, afraid of a larger forum. One. Leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool. Five. There are no Russians. Three, three, three. There are no Arabs. Not even natural selection can take place here. The long and powerful arm. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. There are no third worlds. There is no West. For his own profit, a man who controls a political machine and controls everything else worth controlling. His head can be seen to move violently forward. The world is being engulfed in truth. <laughs>